um, and you go, why is a Christian church looking at the Mormons? We've looked at the JWs and you're going, okay, enough with other religions, let's talk about Jesus. We've looked at the atheists last week, uh, and hopefully all this time, it's not just looking at them, it's looking at how we can share Jesus with them. Um, and, and the point of this month, um, it is May, it is Missions Month in Baptist circles, uh, coincidentally, but the point of this month is to understand what others believe and understand what we believe, because if, if what we believe, if, if this word, if the Bible is the truth, then it's got to stack up against all competitors. And so we've got to know what the options are. Our faith uh, is firm and solid, and therefore it must stand true against all other claims to the truth. And so hopefully um, you've been challenged a few, things, a few times. Hopefully your, your own faith has been strengthened. Um, there are some nutters in the world. But then again, people look at us and say, nutter Christians. So what we're going to do today is slightly different. We're going to pray in a minute. I'm going to give you a 45-minute uh, sermon, uh, more like 10 minutes, if that. And then we're going to open the floor to questions. Questions, there's maybe questions that have arisen over the last three or four weeks, but also questions, Nick, how do I share Jesus with a person who refuses to eat cheese on the basis that the cow is God? Any questions that have stumped you? Um, and either I will answer it, or my wife will answer it, <laughs> or Steve will answer it, or Graham will answer it, or anyone will answer it. This is, this is not about uh, me having all the answers. This is about us together trying to share Jesus as his church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, as Jim has just sung for us, Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways when life is brilliant and fantastic and, and when we feel 147%. Teach us your ways when life is overcast. Lord, when we feel 80% or 50% or 10% or minus 32%. Teach us your ways. Shine your light on our path, Lord, and, and bring us to the place where we um, can know you and trust you and obey you fully. Lord, we long for that day when you return and, and make our hearts of stones into hearts of, of flesh, new, new hearts, Lord, that reflect yours. It's going to be wonderful on that day, Lord, because, because all of your people will be together and, and there will be no people who do not trust you and know you in your kingdom. But until that day, help us, please, to live as citizens of that kingdom. Teach us your ways, Lord, that they might be our ways. Thank you that you do guide us and that you do walk with us. Thank you that each day is a new day with you. Thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence because of what you have done, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that, that even though we sin, we have a, an advocate who intercedes for us. Teach us your ways. Father, teach us your ways that we might walk on them and also that we might share them with others. Lord, we cannot save a single person, but you can. Teach us your ways that as we walk, others might seek to walk after you too. Give us the wisdom to interact with ourselves and our own doubts and questions, but also those of the people we come into contact with throughout the week. Give us wisdom, I pray, Father. And I pray, especially for me now, that you would open my lips and open my mind and open my heart, that, that what I say would reflect something of what you say. 
Speak, I pray, Father, by your Spirit, for the sake of your Son, for the sake of you, Father. Amen. Um, turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, very quickly for our 45-minute sermon. We're going to look at the first four verses in 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John, written by John, um, starts very similarly to the Gospel of John, which we looked at when we, when we saw um, something of what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, is how John begins his Gospel. But have a look at how he begins his letter, the first letter of John. He says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. In fact, if you look at the Greek, the New Living Translation tidies it up a bit. The first four verses is like one sentence. It's horrible. Um, But the Greek is more along the lines of, that which existed from the beginning, which we have heard and seen, we proclaim to you. This one, who is life itself, verse 2, was revealed to us, we have seen him. And now we testify and we proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. John writes this letter. Uh, it seems the context that he's writing into, people are going around questioning the personhood of Jesus. And in particular, was he fully human as much as he was fully God? In, in other words, they're, they're coming at the incarnation, the, the Jesus, God becoming man, and they're going, well, God cannot become man, which is... Uh, a statement that many of the cults that we've looked at would agree with and that the Muslims would agree with and, and many people would agree with. In fact, there are some New Age religions that, that say, well, I like Jesus and I'm going to take, take the teaching of Jesus, but, but let's not go for all this other stuff. They're American for some reason. <laughs> Others... Others say, you know what, let's, let's unite as all the religions of the world. Let's come together on a common platform. We can do that, you know. We can easily come together on a common platform with the Muslims and the, and the Mormons and the JWs. We can do that as long as we get rid of Jesus. And that's the problem that John's writing about. Because for John, the reality of Jesus, God become man... Uh, is, is vital. It's, it's the gospel. It's vital for salvation. I think John is, just in his first four verses, he says to us, the gospel is all about Jesus. He speaks of that which was from the beginning. Instead of the New Living Translation uh, speaks of the one who, but, but the actual Greek speaks about that which was from the beginning. It uses the neuter because it's not just speaking about the person of Jesus, it's It's speaking about the gospel. The gospel, which was from the beginning. The good news of God. But it's a that which we touch and see. 
You see, for John, the gospel is Jesus. You, you can sort of mix and match the two because the gospel is Jesus. The gospel took personal form in Jesus and the apostles not only saw him, but they were convinced and convicted that Jesus is the word of life, life itself. In fact, that's what they testify to, that Jesus is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father before being revealed to them. And John writes in verse 2, um, in Greek it says, the word order is different again, a very complicated sentence this. It says, the life the eternal life, which was with the Father. The emphasis is on Jesus is the life, the eternal life. Life that never ends. So we're looking at the whole question of sharing our faith. And so the reason I'm reading those, these four verses is because I want to show us what John says the basis of our trust, of our faith, should, should be. And at the center stands the historical entrance of Jesus the Christ into history as the definitive revelation of God. That is what sets Christianity aside and apart from all other religions. We say Jesus shows us who God is and Jesus saves us. It's an event that we cannot get rid of, the coming of Jesus. We cannot redefine it as a myth. We cannot say, oh, very nice, but but he has been supplanted by later revelations, by Muhammad or, or by Joseph Smith. No, Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. And he has been verified, says John, as this by those who actually saw him. You see, the Christian faith is not based on doctrine or or um, tradition, it's based on eyewitnesses speaking from experience. And not just the eyewitness experience of one person, John writes, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. The apostles, what we've heard, we've heard Jesus speak, we've, we've accompanied all that time that he walked around, we, we have received instruction from him, we have received teaching from from him, we have been trained by Jesus, and as we've heard him, they come to a realization that Jesus is the Son of God. What we have seen with our eyes, they saw Jesus physically, and not only Jesus prior to his death and resurrection, they saw the risen Jesus. This is what we testify to. We heard him, we saw him, and more than that, we touched him. We looked at, he says again, we looked and not only saw him, we looked at him and we have touched him with our hands. That's, that's so much, I think, a reference to the resurrection body of Jesus. And Jesus said to them at one stage, hey, come on, have a look here. Um, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Put your hand there, Thomas. Feel, side. The... Apostles were eyewitness testifiers. Eyewitness testifiers of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And they proclaim the word of life, the word and work of Jesus. And in fact, some, verse, some words in here just get repeated over and over again. We see it again in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. 
we proclaim what we have seen and heard. I think John's point is that at the core of the message of the apostles of Jesus is the fact that Jesus Christ has appeared in human flesh. He died, he rose again, and they touched and saw and heard him prior to his death and after his death. So why should we trust the Bible? Well, John says that Jesus revealed the Father to his disciples and initiated them into a fellowship uh, with God. Fellowship is an interesting word. Um, It's used in two senses. It's used um, both of marriage. So if you're married, you are in fellowship with your wife or your husband, as the case may be. Um, But it's also used in terms of business partners. Uh, and, And Jesus is saying here, I think probably more that intimate personal relationship. You have been joined into the family of the Father, the the disciples. They have entered into fellowship, relationship with the Father and with the Son. And the point of why John and the other apostles tell the story is so that those who hear, you and I, can also enter into relationship with the apostles. And through the apostles, with God the Father and Jesus the Son. And in fact, the testimony that initiates us into this relationship with the first century church that has been passed down through the years, and we, well, I enter into a relationship with a church which linked into the past, and there's this chain leading back all the way to the apostles, but the chain doesn't stop at the apostles. It starts with God the Father and Jesus who revealed God the Father to the apostles and initiated them into the family of God. And so, as the the point John says, I'm writing this so that you would have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. In other words, I want you to have a relationship with the Father like we've had because of what Jesus has shown us, and we know that is true. Why do we know that is true? Well, because we thought it up and we thought it sounded really good. No, he says, the reason you can trust this, the reason you can trust this, is that we have actually seen it. I have never seen the risen Jesus. Yet. But the apostles did, and what they saw convinced them of the truth of who Jesus claimed to be. And Jesus thrust them out to to proclaim it. In fact, Uh, John says at the end of his book, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, He says at the beginning, Jesus is eternal life. I'm writing these things so that you can have fellowship with him. If you have fellowship with him, if you have a relationship with him, you have eternal life. The, The point is this link is one of life. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed in his prayer. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, the Christian faith today is not, for the most part, one of sight. It's one of trust, of faith. Remember, those two words are interchangeable most of the time. 
Trust is a doorway into fellowship, into relationship, into knowing Jesus as our brother, as Hebrews puts it, and as our friend, as John puts it, and as our Savior and our Lord. Now, why should we trust this if we haven't seen it for ourselves? The question here is, do we trust not only God, but do we trust John? Do we trust the others who wrote down what God said? and their experiences of God. They saw him. They were convinced of him. And they, they knew no greater joy than being in a relationship with God. And they wanted, they wanted us to share that joy. I look at the apostles, and I was speaking about this the other day, and How many of them died horribly for what they claimed was the truth? I am convinced that if it was a made-up lie, at least one of them would have broken. Remember, there were, there were over, says Paul in 1 Corinthians, there were over 500 people who claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. You get me 500 people, I'm a nice guy. I will break one of them and get them to tell me the truth. Imagine the Romans who are experts in torture. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The reason we trust the Bible is because it is evidence. It's eyewitness testimony. And if it's true, it means everything. Right. That's all I want to go. Does that 45 minutes? Almost. Um, questions. Any questions from anyone? This is your chance to put up your hand, to stand up, to yell and scream. Otherwise, it's going to be really boring. On the question of God, is there a God? Yeah. A lot of people say, if there was a God, there wouldn't be any suffering. 150,000 people slaughtered in Syria alone, just in recent months probably. How can there be a God? That's a good question. Does anyone have an answer? How do we explain natural evil? And it's a, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. Um, for me, the way I would answer that question is to say, how do we explain natural evil? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And I look at that and I go, yes, is God in charge? Yes, God is in charge. 
But why is there evil and suffering in the world? Well, there's evil and suffering in the world because there are people in the world. Um, when it comes to natural disasters, that's a, that's a whole other question. But the problem is that at the moment, Stanley Grenz puts it a great way. He says um, that there's two ways of being in charge. There is a de facto way of being in charge, and there is a sovereignty uh, sovereignly in charge and de facto in charge. At the moment, God is sovereignly in charge. He is ultimately in charge. The buck stops at him. But in the world at the moment, until Jesus comes, Jesus who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, until he comes back, there is a de facto ruler of this world who stands in opposition to God and, and all of us humans, because we are sinners, um, fall under the leadership of unknowingly, unwittingly even, of this de facto ruler. So it looks as if God is not in charge, because if God was in charge, there wouldn't be bad stuff in the world. But the Bible says, 1 Peter uh, says to us, um, God's not being slow, God's being patient, because he wants everyone to be saved. But, but even as God waits for people to turn to him in repentance, there is still this evil in the world, and evil results in death. Evil within me results in death. Evil within you results in death. So why is there death and suffering in the world? Well, because God is waiting for us to turn to him. Because there is this de facto ruler who does not like God and in fact hates us as much as he hates God, even though he pretends not to. Now one day Jesus will return and on that day every knee will bow, says the Bible. Every knee uh, on earth, under the earth, in heaven, will bow down before him. And at that stage, God, who is sovereignly in charge, will also be in charge in practice. Sort of like, that sounds very heretical. He will be de facto in charge and sovereignly in charge. Um, everything will run according to the will of God. But right now, God says, I'm giving you a chance to turn to me. Before the day comes when I come in judgment and say, right, long enough is long enough. So when people say to me, why is there evil in the world? You know what, that's a, that's a furfy question. The, the question is more of, well, what sort of person are you? And there's all sorts of psychology tests that you can do. There's one that my wife's father always likes telling me about. Um, about a, a psychological test where they put someone there, they gave them an electric buzzer, a shock system, and they had an actor in an electric chair, and they had a technician, also an actor, and, and they said, just shock him a bit if he doesn't get it right. So they shock him, okay, turn it up. And there's, marked on the dial, is like, deadly, deadly. Like, if you go there, you're going to kill the person. And these people, ordinary, good people, there's a person in a white coat going, right, like, no, you can turn it up a bit more. Turn it up into the deadly zone. Just keep turning it up. That, that's fine. He can take it. And, and these good people, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's acting, but they kill this person sitting in the chair. Why? Because we're evil. The, the evil is not out there. The evil is in here. The evil is not in God. The evil is in here. And the goodness of God is that he is that he wants us to turn to him. Eric, how would you answer the question that you asked? Yeah, I agree with all, all that. Uh, I think the only 
God uh, in this world, if it's God in the world and there's uh, people, uh, where does the question of free will come in? Oh. And that, that means uh, that if uh, God has made us, he won't violate that free will. Oh. And so the message is to all who willing come. But yeah. that's the criteria. Yeah. Which is exactly right. Um, it's, it's us choosing to be wrong. Another question. There's aspects of that we haven't sort of uh, looked at in terms of what I used to term natural evil. Mm. Things like um, earthquakes, tidal waves. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of things of that nature. Um, the, the sicknesses we're exposed to, yeah. um, you can't put it down to human. It's Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> the sicknesses, earthquakes, natural disasters, floods, um, they're not down to my sin, but they're down to the fact of human sin. Um, people sinned and therefore the world was broken. Um, is it because I sin that an earthquake happens and I die? No. Jesus, Jesus himself said, people don't get crushed under a tower fall just because they sinned more than others. The earthquake happens because the plates are moving. Um, how does it relate to the whole structure? The Bible says bad things happen because humans sinned. The Bible says Jesus is coming back. He's going to make it all new. When people say, how come bad things happen? I think um, the right answer to say is, is not, it happens because people are bad. We can't say people who suffer and die in an earthquake suffered and died because they were worse than us. The question we have to ask ourselves is, well, if, if I were to die today, would I be with Jesus? So do bad things happen in this world? Yes. Do people get sick and die? Yes. Is there illness and disease? Yes. Is that right? No. And one day it's not going to be that way anymore. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, does anyone deserve not to die? No. Is God being unjust to allow an earthquake to take someone away? Seems hard, but... If we are all sinners, then no. Anyone got another answer? With the apostles, and they weren't treated any differently to what they are now. Now look at John, or whoever it was, that was put in jail because mm. he was a follower of Jesus. Mm. So there's still the wicked on the earth and yeah. it'll never happen until we luckily will go up and they will be left well it's even better than that because jesus will come down and they will be gone that's that's the even more amazing thing yes there are still wicked people on the earth uh, and if you want to find the most wicked person um look towards the front of the church and when you get home look in the mirror um because we're saved by grace um, and the wickedness is within us, even though it's dead within us. I've used the illustration. 
Uh, Christ has cut off the head of evil, that is uh, the, the head of the snake, but the snake still thrashes and bites and chomps and tries to kill. But it's dead in us. Question. Anna Marie looked very disappointed when she couldn't ask a question. So can we go to Anna Marie and then to Colin? On a recent Q&A episode on TV, a member of the audience asked the panel whether Australia should still celebrate Easter. Bob Carr said he thought Australia should, but he genuinely expressed that he didn't understand why Jesus died um, for us. He really didn't understand that. And so, Nick, if you were on that panel and had a wide-ranging audience, you know, fellow panel members, studio audience, TV audience, how could you explain uh, this death and resurrection of Jesus? It's such an important part of Christianity in a way that people will understand. That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure I agree that we should celebrate Easter. You don't believe it, don't celebrate it. Um, You really just want a holiday, don't you? Um, why would Jesus suffer and die? Well, that, that's the core of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus was born, he was incarnated, God became man. He died and he rose again. Why did he die? Well, it comes back again to the whole problem of evil. All of us have sinned. Romans 3.23. Where is Isabella's not here? We've learned this at youth group. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. The only way that we can be made right with God and have a relationship with God is for what we have done wrong to be made right. We need to be uh, justified. We need to be... That, never use the word justified. It's very Christian. We need to have our mistakes undone. We need to have the penalty paid. Now the point that what I would say to them is, all of us have done wrong things. If God is in charge, God sets the rules. God's rules say, if you are not perfect, you deserve to be punished. All of us have done wrong. We go back to the first one. Therefore, all of us deserve to be punished. The punishment for doing anything wrong is death. Because life is God, and and we've just read that in 1 John, God is life, and, and if the punishment for doing anything wrong is not being in God's presence, which means not being in the presence of, of life, which means death. Um, God loves us. So we've done something wrong, God's in charge, the punishment for doing something wrong uh, is death, but God loves us. God doesn't want us to die, and therefore God says, I have to sort things out. God says, the only way for you to be right with me is for you to face the punishment. But if you face the punishment, you die. There's only one person who can face death and not be overcome by that, and that is me, the one who is life itself. Therefore, I will send my own son who is life itself as a human who will face death, who will die, who will overcome death because he is life, 
by definition, death cannot hold down life. And, and I will look at him and he will do this not because of his own mistakes, because he has none, because he's me, but because of your mistakes. And if you trust him, he will sign his name over your life and you will be completely exonerated. That's why we have Easter. That's what I would say to them. Those, I lost count, six steps. We've done wrong. God's in charge. God sets the rules. Therefore, the rules say if we've done anything wrong, we need to be punished. Uh, Punishment equals death. God loves us. God says, I don't want you to die. Therefore, I'm going to send my son. He is life. He's never done anything wrong. If he dies, death cannot hold him down because death can't hold down life. Uh, And he's done it not because of anything he's done wrong, because he's me. Um, And he's going to do it for you. That's Easter in a nutshell. uh, Colin. Any more questions after Colin, or shall we call it? Quits then. Loud voice, Colin. Um, A question that's being asked of me is, uh, which church, given that the Christian church is kind of divided, and there's historical um, and even current atrocities committed in Christ's name, and given the fact that there are cults, and differences in theology. So mm-hmm. a friend of mine actually asked me, so how do you choose a church? I mean, why is there such division? And I mean, you know, I've tried explaining it myself, but I'd like to hear another. Which church is the right church? Which Christian church? Which yeah. Christian church? Well, yeah. Joseph Smith was asking this question, and he was in the woods praying one day, and God appeared to him and said, none of them, Joseph. Instead, you're going to go and believe a fairy tale about me coming to America, and the American Indians are suddenly DNA-wise Jews. So, not the Mormons, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, Which church is the right church? Which church has it 100%? How do you navigate that question? Yeah. Every church has something wrong. especially us. Every church has something wrong because we are not God. And we're not Peter. And we're not Paul. And even if we were, which church is the right church? You go back to the first century as Paul's traveling around and people are going around saying to Paul, Paul, you got it wrong. That's not the right way to do church. Um, The history of the church is the history of people going, that's not how you do church. That's not what Jesus meant. Which church is the right church? The right church is, is based on three things. Might be two. Number one, is Jesus fully God and fully human? Um, no one can say that Jesus is God without the Spirit. No one can say that Jesus is God become man without the Spirit. Um, That's a misquote from somewhere. Anyone who says Jesus has not come in the flesh is not from the true church. Anyone who says that we need anything else except the Bible 
needs to be questioned. Because if, as John says, this is the testimony of those who have witnessed and written what God has shown them, if this is eyewitness testimony of the definitive revelation of God, um, that is essential. Anyone who says you need to do anything except trust Jesus to be saved is not the right church. Now, on those marks, every church fails at some point. But the right church is the one that says, join us as we together enter into relationship with God. And it's not about the pastor having a relationship and you sort of tacked onto the pastor. No, it's you having a relationship with God through the church, through the ages, through the apostles, to Jesus, to the Father. Which is the right church? The right church is the one that believes Jesus is God, that believes Jesus died, rose again as God. I think that pretty much summarizes it. Um, in What's that old saying? In, in the essentials, unity. Do you remember this one, Tara? In, in all... Come on, you remember it, Lynn. Not exactly. I've, I can't remember exactly. In, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, um, charity. To summarize it into two. If it's key to the gospel, is Jesus really God? Yes. Did Jesus really die? Yes. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Do you have to do nothing except trust Jesus to have eternal life? Yes. If you hold those four things, you're going to be fine. You're going to be messed up in other places because, face it, we're humans. We get God wrong. Um, that's, that's the question we've looked at. Every, every cult that we've looked at, we've said, what do they believe about Jesus? What do they believe about the Bible? Does that answer the question? Anything else? Going once. Going twice. Going three times. Sold to the man walking out to go to Fremantle. Um, we've gone a little bit overboard. Um, it is time, I think, for us to sing a song. May God bless you. Uh, I pray that your faith is strengthened, that that you would grow in your knowledge and understanding, that you would know how high and how deep and how wide the love of God is, and that we would have wisdom as we speak to others.